We've lit the bat signal and you've heeded the call. Thank you for downloading our Christmas special about Batman Returns for the Talk Filmy to Me film podcast. It goes without saying, if you have not seen the film or do not want any of the plot to be spoiled, it's probably best that you watch the film first. You can currently watch it on Amazon Video, via either renting it or purchasing it. If you are living in the UK and a Sky Movies customer, it is currently available on demand, also on the Sky Movies streaming at certain points. If you're in the US, it is currently available on Netflix. And uh, I think I've covered all bases there, so there you go. Fair warning, we are going to go into absolute spoilerific detail and nerd out with the best of them, so enjoy. In a cloud where there are already too many film podcasts, you have to ask yourself, what's the harm in one more? Two ordinary men, armed with unqualified opinions, talk at you. Talk filmy to me. Hello, welcome to the Talk Film With Me podcast. As mentioned, this is a special Christmas spoiler special about Batman Returns. Um, Join me on the pod today. It is someone who I've been wanting to have for a while on this pod. Um, I've been trying to get him involved as well, in any way I can, but one thing we do love is a love for Batman. I put the bat signal out there and went, Michael, I need you. That's my boy for today, Michael Cardinedles. How are you doing, buddy? I'm not too bad, mate. I'm not too bad. I was sitting in my giant gothic castle, brooding gloomily alone with, a, <laughs> with like a brandy or something, and I saw the bat signal shining through my giant window, and then I, I, I sat there and moodily looked at it with a glint in my eye just for like five minutes without actually doing anything. It was good. How are you? Oh, oh I, I am chipper, mate. Um, so it should be mentioned that Michael is a is a fellow podcaster. He is the host of a a pretty good football podcast called A Pod of Two Halves, where you guys talk about the latest in the world world of football. You obviously are a film buff as well, mate. Let's let's kick kick this right off. So Batman Returns, classic fucking film, obviously. When was the first time you saw this? I saw this film. It must have been when I was about. Oh, I think I must have been about seven. I think I must have been about seven. That doesn't help. That's not a year, obviously. What year did the film come out? Was it like 92 or something? Or 90? Yeah. Yeah, it came out in 92. That's what I um, thought. I saw it in 93, 94. I, so. I saw it in 94 when I was seven. Because I remember seeing it around the time I went to Disneyland with my parents. And I watched Batman. It was great. That's pretty fucking cool. Uh, I remember... So, back then, it would come out in the cinema for a fucking long time. And I remember the papers, because there was a period of time in the UK when when there was a big film being announced, the papers would would speculate a lot about this. Now, Batman 89 was an absolute smash hit. And we'll talk a bit about that in, in detail, about how that led to the, the new world for Tim Burton to go, to go conquer, really. But I remember in the papers, there was this really iconic shot of Batman. And there's a really iconic bit in the film, right? You know, do you remember during the the first scene in that fucking town square, which I'll talk about that town square quite a lot in this pod, but do you remember that scene where he first sees uh, Selina Kyle as Batman and he fires that um, grappling hook into the wall and pulls out, it's really iconic, against that, that clown guy? Yeah, I remember that. A... A screen from that was taken and leaked to the press to show the, the new bat suit because it is a new bat suit. They they go from being more muscular to being more more armor based really in in this suit. And um, I remember just that image was so striking. And at the time, there was loads of um, loads of press about uh, negative press about how the film was being perceived by by parents groups and stuff like that. And my parents were like, "You're not seeing this film." Like we've seen shots of Danny DeVito and uh, all these different adversary groups for parents are saying how shit this film is for for kids to see you're not seeing it now of course that made me want to see it more and uh, my dad 
in 94, I think it was, got me a dodgy copy from Northfield Market. And I must have watched that VHS about a billion times. God bless dodgy <laughs> copies, eh? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Where does it sit for you in terms of Batman? When did you get the Batman bug? When did I get the Batman bug? Um, I must yeah. have been... I'm. I, well, I remember... Basically, I saw 8 or 9 Batman. Pretty much... It's pretty much the first film I can remember seeing. To I, th- I think. Um, that and Flight of the Navigator, which was another great film from 86, if I think so. Um, but yeah, oh, that's a classic. Bat- yeah, Batman '89 was pretty much the first film I, re- I remember seeing, and just like you said, my parents, from what I remember, didn't particularly want me seeing Batman Returns either because I just I remember the image of the Penguin, uh, Danny DeVito, with like the green blood, like kind of oozing out of his mouth and his horrible rotten teeth. And it looked terrifying, and um, but it, uh, Batman for me has been um, the only superhero that I actually like pretty much my entire life. So. Mm. Yeah, it, it, for me, Batman Returns is a, is a oh, I don't know how controversial to be. I, for me, it's the uh, the third best Batman film. Are you including the Nolan verse in this? Yes, I am, yes. Oh, that is a bold statement, but yeah. I, I respect your opinion on that. So um, it's quite interesting to think about where these films sit, right? Because we'll answer this question again at the end of the pod after we've, we've dived into this. For those who haven't listened to a Talk Filming to Me special before, uh, what we do is we really go into detail about the film. We nerd out about some facts you might not have known about this film. Talk about uh, maybe some of the production uh, joys and woes that come with that. And maybe some of the rumours of what could have been of that film as well. And yeah, we basically nerd out for a bit on this. So for me, I agree with you. Batman, I think... Batman 89 is is just incredible uh, for a lot of reasons, but Batman Returns is, for me, it's actually the sum of all the parts is not as good as the moments in this film. Now, I'm doing that with a proper pedantic, oh, I now review films hat on. <laughs> when I was a kid, I, fuck it, I fucking loved this film, man. And the makes a good video game, good classic video game. Did you ever play the, the I think it was Master System one? I played a... I think I played one on the Mega Drive. I don't know if I played the one you're talking about, though. It might have been the Mega Drive. I just remember there was a really hard Batman Returns game, and I remember I played the shit out of that before I even saw the film because the game came out when the cinematic released it two years previous, but, you know, <laughs> early early 90s, late 80s, like, films would last years in terms of when they get released to cinema, to VHS. But uh, also, I mean, let's, that soundtrack was so iconic. It's, um... Right. Okay. So yeah, the 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 return soundtrack is iconic. Is that the one we're talking about? Because Batman, the first Batman, has a more iconic soundtrack. Surely, right? It it does. But sorry, when I say soundtrack, I mean film score. So ah, Danny okay. Elfman revisited the Batman theme and he jazzed it up for Returns. But it also became the theme for Batman the animated series yes. that was launched in the same year. Yes. And like like that is just for me. When you hear those tones, that's Batman. That like, that's Batman. It's amazing. There were multiple times throughout, because I hadn't seen Batman Returns for, well, I mean, I bought it on Blu-ray when it came out on Blu-ray, and I never watched it, and I hadn't seen it, I haven't seen it after I bought it, so it's been probably like 10, 11 years since I actually watched this film, and that's the, one of the big things that stood out for me when I was making my notes was just how incredible the score was, the music, it really, really puts you in that Batman frame of mind, and then obviously you combine that with the kind of the cinematography and just the dark broodiness of Gotham City. It's, it's, yeah, it's all right. It's all right. It's not bad. It's, it's all right, bruv. It's all right. It's not One bad. thing which, um, the only thing like there's a like the way way I think we'll, we'll structure this pod is we'll talk a little bit more about how we personally like this film, but then talk a bit about 
what led to this film being made, how it was made, uh, talk through, kind of walk the film in terms of key moments. And then at the end, I kind of want to do the the UK HR um, shit sandwich of something good, something and and finish off with something good on that. And this is going to be something which might be controversial in this is that I think this film is actually more Schumacher than people want to admit. Yeah, people kind of say the first two Burton films, incredible. And then it kind of goes downhill from there, where I'd say actually Batman Forever is actually quite good, but obviously Batman and Robin is is a train wreck. And there are some bits in this where you can start to see the the bits of dialogue or the way it's positioned all of a sudden starts paving the way for when Tim Burton steps away from the Batman project and uh, I think it's Joel Schumacher, or whatever his name is, steps in and it starts becoming a bit more kid-friendly, a bit more camp, a bit more shit dialogue. And there's some moments in this which you don't realise, uh, oh, I, I thought it was kind of night and day the difference between, but it is, it is kind of a decline from that perspective. I agree with you on that remark as well because there's a there's a particular moment in the film where because again obviously that's obviously the you know the 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 you know the theory is that the first two Batman films the Burton films were dark and then after that it was silly campy horrible goofiness and there's a moment in Returns where there's a big massive can I swear on the show you can, you can swear to your heart's content mate I can say the f word yeah you can drop whatever bombs you want right there's the fattest motherfucker I've ever seen in my life he rocks around the corner he's like <laughs> a big thug villain type guy and um, basically Batman punches him he's like you know is that all you got mate but Batman had planted some dynamite on the guy's chest right and then he throws mm. him into a fucking hole and everything explodes so basically he's committed clear murder there and then it pans to Batman's face <laughs> and he just has this like shit-eating grin where he's just like, yeah, that was great. And that, that, that and <laughs> bear in mind, that had come off the tails of about oh, what, a, a minute earlier where there's a guy terrorizing the, the, a shop with a flamethrower, right? He's like a circus freak with yep. a flamethrower. Yep. And then, so Batman's like in his car... And he, he has this particular device and this contra- this contraption where the car lifts up off his axis, spins around <laughs> like 180 degrees or what have you. So the, the exhaust is pointing towards the flame breather. And he just basically lets his exhaust go and his and the flames from the back end of the Batman building, you know, the iconic flames, just completely engulf this poor bastard. And then he's a mess and he's just <laughs> flailing around and Batman rides off triumphantly. Like what? what? I, those two particular moments, I was sitting there going, hang on a minute. I'm pretty sure. Wait, um, what? No, I don't remember this happening. It's just very, very odd. The Thomas the Tank Engine style pivot, and uh, yeah, <laughs> oh, I've got my notes for that bit. Is Thomas the Tank Engine turn around and absolutely murders someone? But uh, but yeah, we'll talk about that scene in a bit more detail in a moment. Let's talk about like how this film actually comes to be, right? So obviously, Batman '89 came out. It took the world by storm. It was one of the most successful movies of the year. It had such a long tail because of word of mouth. And uh, it it took over the whole world. Batmania, they coined it as a phrase, right? Uh, Tim Burton wasn't actually that well renowned as a as a director at that point, and he he star shot to fame at this point. Now, Tim Burton is if all the stuff you read about him, he's very he's a very uh, self reflecting kind of guy. He kind of had a bit of a crisis of confidence with with this movie. He kind of had uh, imposter syndrome or whatever you call it. He generally believed didn't know if his film was amazing or is it because people love this character so much that if you just put Batman on top of the poster, people will go see it. And he he really did toy with this for a while after the release of this. And uh, Warner Brothers saw the success they had straight away and said, right, we need a sequel in the works. Now, unfortunately, in the... In the early 90s, putting a sequel in the works doesn't mean it's going to come out next year. It does take it did take a few years for it to happen. 
one of the reasons why it took so long to happen uh, by by this standards was a few things. One, the main reason was actually because of Tim Burton. He he didn't know if he wanted to make a sequel. Him and Michael Keaton were not signed up to massive contracts. It was a, a one and done sort of job. So they had to renegotiate those contracts. But at the same time, uh, Tim Burton was like, I don't know. I'm I'm kind of done against this. Um, when he done the '89 film, he was dead against the '60s show. He wanted to make it a complete polar opposite, right? As Michael mentioned about how dark and brooding, but amazing it was. No, tried to really move away from many uh, comparisons to that TV show, which is an interesting theme because I'll touch upon a bit of this sort of stuff later. But um, Warner Brothers come back to him and say, look, you know, it's been amazing. We want this sequel to to happen. and uh, But I understand there's a few reservations you got. So they basically bent over a barrel to give him everything he wanted. So here's some things that you think, Jesus fucking Christ, this might feel like it's it's normal practice now but this wasn't back then so first of all the location of where they filmed they filmed it all in pinewood in the uk actually uh, the original batman film and they decided to move the whole thing over to the us now 50 percent of the warner brothers lot where they were making tons of other films at this time so a whole 50 percent of their their space for building sets was taken up by this movie because tim burton wanted to start building massive giant sets and he started being inspired by gothic uh, architecture and doing his whole retro futuristic gothic look um, at the same time he didn't want any tie-ins from the studio anymore in the first film he was told no you're having prince as the soundtrack like prince wants to be on the soundtrack he's the biggest music star in the world he's on your soundtrack that is it you don't ever say in the matter he had a say in this matter so hence why there's no big music stars uh, actually affiliated with, which is kind of a crying shame right because mike mentioned earlier the first soundtrack with prince is fucking incredible it's incredible but the bat dance is still one of my favorite songs of all time no, oh, mate, it's, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but the one where it's uh, the Joker's just gunning around with paint in that museum. I well, the one where it's like white and red, pink and green. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely love it. But also, other than the music tie-ins, um, he was allowed to hire who he wanted. And it's like, uh, I'm, I'm, I want to do this, but I actually want to go learn about myself as a filmmaker. Bear in mind, he was in his early 30s when he made Batman. So like, I can't imagine making anything that good in any part of my life, let alone when like in the early 30s sort of thing. But anyway, he was. Uh, they said, no, actually, you know what? You're even going to have time. So he went away and he made Edward Scissorhands. Uh, which ain't a bad film to go and make straight afterwards, to be fair. Yeah, you've had a, you've had a decent coffee break there, mate. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, just put your bagel down for a second. Go have a go, do what you want, and then come back. But um, he he made a lot. He learned a lot during that process. So he brought along his uh, cinematographer, and he brought along his screenwriter, as well as some producers from that film as well. So you can kind of tell like the look and feel, as Michael mentioned. There is there is kind of a shift in in look and feel, and also quality of cameras and stuff have improved at that point. So it, this is very much Tim Burton being what we know as Tim Burton, stereotypical Tim Burton. And I would say this is one of the most Tim Burtingest films uh, going. But uh, what's your what's, are you a Burton fan? Like where does he sit for you? Um I am I'm a little bit indifferent with Burton to be honest with you. Um like hmm. I love uh, Nightmare Before Christmas and uh I I really like uh I, I really like Edward Scissorhands. I grew up watching a lot of that movie. Um but then on the other end of the scale, didn't he do Alice in Wonderland? Yeah, like, yeah. I think later Burton. Yeah, yeah. and like any, any, basically anything later Burton appears to be just horrendous. Um, I, I'm, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm take him or leave him. To be honest with you, he's got a very particular style, and as soon as I see that style, it's like, oh, it's Tim Burton, and then you have to make a decision: do you sit down and watch and be Burtoned, or do you get out quickly and not be Burtoned? <laughs> and uh, 
for Batman, I'm always willing to be Burtoned, essentially. Yeah, because he kind of invented Burton-style films with that, right? But yeah, I totally agree with you. After a period of... I don't know when, but probably after that one he done with Brandon Fraser, uh, Monkey Bone, I think is what it's called, it kind of went a bit downhill from there. But anyway, before we, we walk the film, let's talk about the cast. Obviously... Michael, we're, we're men of a certain generation. I think it's fair to say that. For us, Keaton's Batman. Keaton is the only Batman. Um, I, if I'm going to go... I, I don't know what the format of this show is too much, but I'm just going to talk about Michael Keaton for a second, if that's okay. That's I, good, he, he is the perfect Batman, as far as I'm concerned. He plays the brooding, dark... Like The, the best thing about Michael Keaton's Batman is that the line between... He, he, like. Um, Bruce Wayne and Batman has never been so close. Do you know what I mean? He's playing mm. them just off of each side of each other. Whereas, like, you know, historically, Bruce Wayne is the billionaire playboy and he's kind of doing all this cool stuff and Batman is complete alter ego. I feel like the lines between Batman and Bruce Wayne in this film particularly are incredibly blurred and you can see he's carrying it with him constantly and it's the little the way he reacts to certain situations the way he comments the way he looks i absolutely love him and you know amazingly one of the biggest things i actually got from from michael keaton's portrayal as batman in this film he gets a lot of stick for not being a big guy right because people say that oh mm. christian bale is a big guy and uh you know you need to be a, be a good stature to be batman now michael keaton is a bit more slender as we know and the bat suit isn't you know it's quite an interesting bat suit because it's very rounded. You know, he's the cowl or sorry, the, the cape kind of goes over his shoulders, kind of looks like it restricts him a little bit. But I have to say, his jawline in this film, when he's got the when he's got the cowl on, wow. On point. I didn't know. I, d- I didn't realise. It was awesome. One of the things I loved about Keaton's performance in this is that actually Tim Burton at this point obviously really gets the character, but also Michael Keaton does as well, right? He's lived and breathed it for a number of years at this point. And there's a few things. One... Batman works best when he's on the peripheral, when he's not necessarily the main point of attention. Uh, yes, his name's on top of the poster, but it's about how people are afraid of Batman or how he influences a, an area. Less is more, right? Yeah, you know, you, and, and the thing is, like, you usually apply that theory to horror films most of the time, right? So, like, for example, when you see Alien for the first time, you know, the alien doesn't appear until a good way into the film. Likewise with the films like mm. Predator and things like that. For me, you know... The best films are when you have something that's the point, the target of the film, and it's not kind of like the wisecracking all-action American hero, for example, but you have like a thing, an entity in that film, which is clearly the draw, less is always more in the situation. And you can apply Batman to that theory, because if you had a film which is two hours of Batman constantly being amazing and constantly doing everything... It would be too much, and you're put, you're, I think you've nailed it when you say that Batman on the periphery is the key. Definitely, and in fact, Keaton knew this, and he even had he cut his own lines from this film. They would record a scene, and he would just kind of ad lib and remove parts, and they're saying, uh, "Michael, you're you're removing dialogue," and he goes, "He goes, I don't need to say anything. The suit is striking enough." And the fact that he had such confidence that he knew, like you know, as Michael mentioned, he's a short guy. He's not exactly like he's not stacked. But when he's in that suit, you believe he can take down a guy who's 250 pounds. You believe that he can he can stand there and put fear into people because he knew the, the power that suit, wearing that suit has on screen and how beautiful it looks across the night. When it's that backdrop, when he's on top of the buildings yep. and stuff, it looks absolutely incredible. I think he's more, I think, I think he's more imposing. I think he's the most imposing Batman, despite also being the smallest, because he has a presence about him. As you said, there is a fear factor to him. And when he's kind of beating up goons, one thing I noticed in this film as well, 
Michael Keaton puts almost quite a lot of work into when he's beating up goons as Batman. He almost takes enjoyment out of it. He has a bit of a like a snarl to him, like a little smirk every now and again as he's doing it. And it's like he's got that, I don't know what era of Batman he's meant to be portraying, but he's portraying a Batman which I can really get on board with. This is the Batman that I want to see. And he's uh, he nails it, he nails it. People listening to this podcast know I absolutely love Nolan and everything he's done. But you don't have to be like, where is the detonator? You want to give it to an ordinary citizen? Yeah, you know, it, it could be, it could be subtle as well. And um, anyway, speaking of of someone's performance who's definitely not subtle, and I think she's absolutely she epitomizes amazing female iconic performances in this film. Michelle Pfeiffer, how good is she in this film? She's very, very, very interesting in this film. Um, I think her uh, the the transformation from going you know secretary who's afraid of everything who is very much like you know needs a man in her life to be complete but you know he's rebelling against that because she wants a career you know you know what I mean but very unlucky in almost yeah. every aspect of her life to go from that to the most confident female like just symbol that was in cinema or anywhere in pop culture in that time period like the, mm. the transformation she goes through in this film is incredible and i think um fifa really really she delivers i think some of the lines are a little bit like i cringed a little bit at some things but she comes at it with a complete confidence and like the scene where her and the penguin are in his little house thing and she eats the bird and all that kind of stuff i think that is my favorite scene that she's in in the film because she she exudes confidence and when she's up against yeah. the penguin they are completely on equal footing. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, she yeah. she brings that massively to the table, and I, I I really enjoyed her performance. No, I agree with you completely on that. Um, I don't think I don't think the writing's been good to her. I think that she just fucking works with what she's got. Oh, she she took she she took she took chicken shit and turned it into chicken salad for sure. Because they, you know, they 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 fed her some duff lines in there, and but she came at it with a charisma, a confidence. And because it's such mm. an outlandish character, you can get away with the delivery being that outlandish, if you feel me. I yeah, felt yeah. anyway. Do you know the, the scene where she first goes to Shrek's uh, shopping mall and she's just skipping around and she then whips the mannequins? Yeah. Right, right. That film. she done that all bit. that. Her, that bit, she done that whole scene, A, on her own and B, in one take. What? Yeah, that's insane. That She went and learned how to whip and uh, and do it in such a way that she you know it was one take one and done sort of thing like, that's incredible wow um, you you got you can't say Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman without talking about that suit I'm gonna be honest when I was a little boy seeing that those image <laughs> that image in the paper for the first time I felt things like she looks stunning in that and the, do you know what my favorite like again a kind of a surprise to me when I watched this film. No, none of the characters have like gleaming white teeth, which amused, which shocked me a little bit. Like Michael Keaton's teeth look are pretty crooked, a little bit yellow. Michelle Pfeiffer's teeth, when she's uh, you know, as the, even as the Catwoman, she's got like she hasn't got dazzling teeth. Like when it, when you, like you look at her in the cat suit, and actually you look at her eyes, which are like they look washed out to a degree. Loads and loads of makeup. Her teeth and her and her mouth and her skin, like she looks like a fucking mess. But she's in that suit, and because she's like. She's so confident in the way she moves and her actions. It's like you, I don't know, it's a weird mirror image. Like she's perfection, but she's also incredibly flawed. And it's kind of reflected in her appearance, mm. as well as the suit being kind of all jumbled together. And there's all kinds of bits and rips and stuff. Like it's a very, very interesting look she's got. 
Yeah, she could only wear it for about 15, 20 minutes at a time because she was basically stitched into it. And the, the cow, the Catwoman cow, was basically giving her migraines like if she worked too long. Jesus. And also they covered her in like a weird silicon to like give that shiny sheen. So that would harden if she didn't move around much. Wow. Like it sounds like the worst costume ever, like to wear to work. <laughs> could you give my, if there was a place where I could wear that to work, mate, oh. <laughs> I'll, I'll join your work, mate. I'll be feeling <laughs> things. But I'll tell you who tell you wasn't i wasn't fucking feeling things over which scared the crap out of me as a kid danny devito's penguin let's talk about that for a moment first of all balls deep in terms of like makeup and and just really going for the role but how scary was that character um i couldn't quite believe what i was seeing in all honesty um he i remember as a kid being terrified of the of the penguin i I just from a visual standpoint right he's got the horrible like beaked nose he's got flippers for hands um he's what he's got a very odd body shape he's like a round kind of loaf of bread like a lumpy loaf of bread or something (laughs) and he's got his horrible like disgusting greasy hair and he's he's just a grotesque he's got like a limp as well he kind of he skips and limps along the thing that's that, that like watching it now again as an adult someone who hasn't seen it for so many years the thing that shocked me about him was his fucking mouth like he, his dialogue in this film is unbelievably terrible. Like not terrible as in like yep. it's bad. It's it's dark as fuck, and it's genuinely upsetting to listen to. He is a horrible human. Well, not a human being, is he? He's a misshapen penguin creature, man. But like, <laughs> he is just he's a foul, foul human being or creature. So sorry, it's disgusting, man. And everything plays together, like the appearance, the personality, the voice, the the reactions to things. Just ugh disgusting no i agree and his dialogue like there are some he unfortunately that his dialogue isn't particularly great in some parts of the film apparently he did ad lib quite a bit so like the scene where he's uh he discovers his birthright and he speaks to the press for the first time and he says oh they treated their number one son like number two like that was like him and i was like oh, that's that's not very good and uh yes yeah, some of the dialogue i mean there is one scene which i can't i now laugh as an adult you know that scene where he meets uh shrek for the first time and he's been kidnapped and he just goes uh do you, what happened to your business partner and he goes oh he's on permanent vacation and he just pulls out that hand and he goes how you doing max i'm his hand <laughs> the bit the, the bit when he's um when he's in his little house thing like that, that room kind of above the press center i don't know what where he is but when he gets brought down yeah. and told that he's going to be the mayor you know and the, you know max shrek is kind of like this is you're going to be the man he's giving him that he's giving him that horrible fish which he's just nonching down on like he's going to town <laughs> on this this horrible looking fish and he's got like guts all around his face and stuff like that and then that like he's got his like uh, his PR person and that other guy like a publicist or something like that and the fucking researcher has shown that voters prefer fingers exactly exactly <laughs> and you've got that absolute cheese box with the glasses and he sits there and he goes you know oh don't I have or something around along the lines of oh they haven't got many mirrors in the sewers have they and then the penguin starts like laughing overly like you know you know kind of taking the piss out of him and he's and then I apologise if I fucked the line up. I can't remember what the actual quote is. But then he goes like, it could be something like, it could be worse. My nose could be gushing blood. And I was like, <laughs> right. And he just bites the guy's nose. And like, there's a massive stream of blood just pisses all over everyone. And it's like, 
And then he then he cuts back to the penguin's face, and he's got fucking fish guts. He's got blood. He's got his own blood. It's just bloody everywhere. Oh, it's horrible, mate. And then Shrek just goes to everyone. Let's make a mayor. Like back to work, everyone. So let's talk about another monster in the film. Uh, actually, I narratively uh, is actually the main character, Christopher Walken's Max Shrek. Uh, what did you make of this guy? I f- he won me over by the end, right? Mm. But that hairstyle. Is horrendous. <laughs> that hairstyle, I couldn't handle it. The thing about Max Shrek is, is that he is, he's by far the most dangerous character in the film, right? And Christopher Walken obviously plays Christopher Walken in this film. You know, it's it's a it's a, it's a very <laughs> obvious performance by Christopher Walken playing Christopher Walken. But the actual character of Max Shrek, he's an evil bastard, isn't he? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really understand why they need Max Shrek at this point. Now, in the first film, uh, they introduced Harvey Dent. That was actually played by Billy D. Williams uh, from the Predator movies, and and he's Apollo Creed as well, just to, to name just a couple of fucking awesome roles he's done. Uh, but for whatever reason, they couldn't get him back. And the idea was that actually Harvey Dent would at some point narratively become Two Face, but they couldn't get him back for whatever reason. And they wanted to have a a mayor based story about politics and all that sort of thing. And they they wanted to, and that's how they they rewrote the penguin origin story completely from scratch by the way um in fact uh, we only know this is like our penguin really but before this point again the whole fuck you 60s tv show i i'm gonna re completely concoct a new joke um sorry not new joke a new penguin and uh christopher walken's character was basically came up as a as a plot device now some interesting things on this so one he's he's looked based on vincent price uh, which if you if you follow Tim Burton, you'll know it's a massive influence on Tim Burton's life and that sort of style of film. Some interesting character choices they made. So, um, And this is from Walken, actually. Max only ever wears gloves because he never wants to get his hands dirty as like a metaphor. I thought it was kind of cool. That was cool. I hadn't noticed that, but now I'm looking, I'm thinking back and yeah, that's cool. Uh, some other cool dialogue lines he had actually. Like I really like that scene where he's with um, Selena for that first time. She's obviously discovered something's not right. And she would, she says something along the lines of, um, one could tell that you're, you're moving funds to another one. And he's cut straight in and goes, and who would you tell? And like that, that shows he's got that, that fucking spirit in him to just bloody, when he has to, he will, he will get dirty and he'll literally push her out the window. Let's talk about Chip for a second, who's some, literally the worst <laughs> actor in the history, who's basically a hired goon doing a Christopher Walken impression when he opens that door for the first time and goes, Hey, Mr. Mayor, uh, uh, Dad. He's, he's, oh, God, he's just, he's, he's terrible. He's terrible. Absolutely terrible. Right. I mean, we should point out we do fucking love this film. But anyway, let's walk the film, right? So what we'll do now is for, for a little bit, we're going to go through key parts of the films. I'm going to, let's talk about the intro to begin with, right? That first bit before we see the, the Batman Returns come up. You know, it's very much a Tim Burton Almost like a Tim Burton poem, isn't it? In terms of uh, how we see Penguin being born in a cobble pot house and all that sort of stuff. It's horrendous, mate. It's 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 genuinely horrifying. It's a, it's a common theme throughout this film. We've talked about it a little bit about how dark and foreboding and just miserable Gotham City is to, to be and to 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 live in. And the I'm just going to say in very plain English, right? Because this is exactly what happens. The film opens with a crying baby screaming from a room, okay? It is obvious that, you know, the mother's giving birth to the baby. She's also screaming. The father goes into the room to see what's going on. He starts screaming as well. Then you have a little bit about this weird caged flipper baby thing eating a cat. Then the the, the, the mum and the dad take the baby to a bridge 
and drown the fucker and push the entire pram into the into the stream, okay? And then this the, the baby presumably strapped into this fucking pram thing floats away into the sewer. Now that, yeah, is is despicable. That's a horrible thing to see to open a film. And the worst thing like it went on for like 5 minutes as well. Why did it go on for so mm. long? Like it's very <laughs> very know. effective and it really sets the tone for the film due to how just just completely batshit mental it is. And there are there are several other things I want to touch about as we go through because I couldn't get over how dark this film is. And the, the opening it with basically attempted child murder is <laughs> pretty horrendous in my book. No, I agree with you, but I mean, I, it, it, yeah, it's Tim Burton does it in a way that suspends disbelief that you kind of just go with it, don't you? Now, interesting about that intro scene is that um, the the Penguin's dad, Senior Co- uh, Cobblepot, whatever you want to call him, he's actually played by Pee Wee fucking Herman. He is indeed, isn't like, he? I saw this. Yeah. And originally, uh, Tim Burton wanted to get the guy who played the Penguin in the original 60s show, but unfortunately he was a bit too old at this point. And this is where I start start thinking this duality that, that Tim Burton had of, I wanted to make a film with Batman 89 that was completely against the grain for what people have seen of Batman before, and he, he delivers on, on two fronts. Um, he then decides to start paying homage to the TV show instead. So he goes back and, and gets... Or he tries to get the original Penguin to play him. He even kind of takes inspiration from an episode of the Batman TV show. In the Batman TV show, there's an episode where Penguin runs for mayor. And in the TV show, Adam West's Batman, obviously, would think, the only way I can beat him is to run myself. And Batman (laughs) actually runs for mayor. And and it's kind of like, well, if only he had a, a... a secret identity of a billionaire playboy to fund this. Who would have... Anyway, uh, that's, a, that's a story for another time. <laughs> but um, there seems to be like a, a real longing to all of a sudden pay tribute to that original TV show. One thing that I can't buy though, right? I can get the whole monster mutant baby who eats the cat. And by the way, subtle tones here. Uh, first thing baby sees is a cat and wants to get it out of the way for its parents' affection. Just saying, there's there's a, there's foreshadowing against the Love penguin it. and cat hating each other there. Um, so I can buy the whole mutant baby, take it, you know, on Christmas, on Christmas Eve, on Christmas, Christmas fucking Eve, fucking Eve. Uh, which it's a Christmas film, so that's why it has to happen. But um, yeah, they chuck it through and then they play that intro theme, beautiful as we talked about how iconic it is. But then it goes thirty three years later. Now. I just graced 33 this year. And if I start looking like Danny fucking DeVito at 33, that I, I, I'm, I'm calling shenanigans. He is not 33 in this. They're just trying to make him the same age as Batman. But yeah, that, I refuse to believe that. <laughs> right, so let's let's crack on from, from intro. So we've int- yeah, we know who the Penguin is now. We, we kind of know his origin. You know that. And to be fair, some films would have spent ages on that. They've done the whole origin story of, of the Penguin in like five minutes. Awesome. Perfect. It's fast forward 33 years. It's uh, We're introduced to, to Max Shrek while the Christmas tree is being unveiled. And uh, this is when you really start to, to understand what Shrek's all about in terms of he's a he's a underworld character. He's got dodgy dealings with the mayor. Which, by the way, how pissed off would you be if you're the mayor? Like, you get in bed with this guy and he fucking tries to get you chucked out within, within a few days. But um, a lot of people say to Christopher Walken, even to this day, did you base uh, Max Shrek on Donald Trump? 
Um, obviously not presidential Donald Trump, 80s Donald Trump, which was very similar to Max Schreck at the time, and probably just as evil as a president now. But he's just like, no, I didn't didn't base him on, on Trump at all. We're from the same area, and we've got a really similar accent, so I kind of see where, where people get that from. But a bit of foreshadowing, you know, in that scene where he's got the mayor and they're doing some dodgy deal and it shows some photographs on the wall. Yeah. Uh, inspiration for that was Donald Trump's office because um, he has a very famous office where he keeps lots of photos of celebrities and he always tells people they can have have an item out of the office, whatever. But um, on the on the walls was just Christopher Walken with celebrities. One of them is with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Amazing. And apparently, to get that screen, to get that shot, that is when Warner Brothers started the relationship of dialogue with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Batman, which would eventually. You know, due to conflicts and stuff, because getting the biggest star in the world to appear in your film is pretty chuffing hard. Eventually, it would lead to him becoming Mr. Freeze, and that's yes. how that relationship started. Yes, this is where it started. <laughs> so it all started from that photo, just to be a prop in that scene. I- I'm a huge Mr. Freeze mark, by the way. I love that guy. All right, Mr. Freeze <laughs> is incredible. I will not hear. I right. So I always get confused, just very quickly, between the Mr. Freeze. Um, Hang on, I'm trying to work out... You know the two Joel Shoemaker films? What happened in them? Because yeah. you had Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy, right? Yeah. And then you had Two-Face yeah, so, and The Riddler. Which What yeah. one is which one called? So you've got it the, the reverse. So Batman Forever is Riddler and Two-Face. Yeah. Which, remember, we talked about Two-Face to begin with was originally meant to be part of the story and they just yeah, couldn't yeah. do it for, for Batman Returns. They were still adamant on having a Harvey Dent, so that is why they went back uh, for Batman Returns. Sorry, yeah. Batman Forever, and eventually recast as Tommy Lee Jones, and uh, and the following one was Batman and Robin, which was Poison Ivy That's and right. Mr. Freeze. So right for my money, yeah, Batman Robin yeah. is better than Batman Forever. No, I, I really, I really thing to pull apart there. I, re- I know, I know, I've just kind of laid that down on a show that's on, a, on a, that isn't talking about that show. I'm just going to say this: I actually watched Batman Forever about three years ago, and uh, I found it appalling. Um, Tommy Lee Jones' portrayal as, as Two-Face was horrendous. I, I, I hate that film. And uh, even Jim Carrey, my favourite actor of all time, could not save it, in my opinion. Whereas the other film has got Mr. Freeze. Mr. Freeze, and the gloriousness of Mr. Freeze is that he's got a pun for every weather, especially cold weather. He's incredible. <laughs> oh, that's, that's ice, mate. <laughs> so, uh, maybe you're, to be fair, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm too Jim carrey Arised, for lack of a better word, in that. But uh, interesting, yeah. Well, maybe we'll revisit this in a later pod for that one and dive sorry into to, the Schumacher. Sorry to, sorry to, but derail the conversation. No, no, I apologise. Nah, no, it's all, all good, brother. So, uh, like I said, Christopher Walken was introduced. Actually, just a final bit on this with with old Walken being casters. He wasn't first choice. David Bowie was. Ah, oh, mate, I've written, I've got that written down because he was considered to play the Joker right in the first film, and uh, but yeah, he was. Uh, he de- apparently he declined the offer of Shrek to appear in David Lynch's Twin Peaks Firewalk with Me. Oh, imagine what could have been. But saying that, Christopher Walken as Christopher Walken playing Max Shrek is 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 still pretty good. I mean, the one thing I hate about this thing, so like we see Selena Kyle being introduced for the first time as the as you say the secretary who's overworked and you know just a complete shadow of a person left in the corner as a as a plot device at that point. Even but. To be fair, boys, she makes a mean cup of Java, as uh, as old Max would say. But um, I hate that line of dialogue where she tries to suggest something. She's pissed off at herself for, for talking out loud, and she calls herself a corn dog repeatedly. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, this corn that, that, that dog cuts through me. 
<laughs> and Dog. that leads into into one of the big set pieces of the film, which we discussed earlier. And this is where I start to get the gripes in. Don't me wrong, it's a classic film, but here's some bits that I don't like. There appears to be only four sets in this entire film, and one of them being a city square, where they've got the entirety of Gotham, which we're led to believe is a population of 1.7 million people, and the entire population of Gotham seems to always occupy this one city square where the Christmas tree is. And this is where the first of four, that's right, four scenes are filmed with massive action set pieces is filmed. And we had that first attack from, I think they're called, is it the the Red Triangle group? or Sorry, the Red Triangle gang, which are part of uh, Penguin's ensemble. Yeah. And uh, yeah, all havoc breaks loose and the mayor just like, light the signal. And you're led to believe at this point that... The title of the film is called Batman Returns, and the the concept is that obviously he returns to to fighting crime, and it shows that scene of the house, as Michael mentioned in his in his brooding intro, that that this is Wayne Manor, and he's got these set of pulleys around the uh, the steeple, sending this signal to him. Now, as someone trying to be inconspicuous about Bruce Wayne, you wouldn't have <laughs> massive bat signals on your roof now, would you? No. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but what I love about that scene it is so striking it is so beautiful that scene uh, one of two sets they use I'll come back to the house later um, where he's sitting there in the dark waiting for things to go bad waiting for that, that chance to call in this is his real life this is his real you know opportunity to put that mask on and the way he just stands up and just looks into that that light so iconically, it is absolutely beautiful. One of the top striking scenes in cinema. I 100% agree. I absolutely, I, I could watch it over and over again. And obviously, you know, we've got the, the music starting to swell. We see the Batmobile for the first time in this film. And, you know, as Michael already talked about, there's that kind of... And this is where it starts to go off the rails, because a little bit anyway. First of all, Batman kills someone which, you know, anyone who knows the ethos, it's, it's not particularly good. One of the screenwriters have come out and even said that, um, that that was a late addition to the film, those sort of scenes. And, uh, yeah, if they had to, if they could have a time machine, they'll definitely fight against that. I, I have a feeling that they, those scenes were put in afterwards for him, like, killing people and taking pleasure out of doing bad things to people. Were they, potentially, were they, do you think they may have been added late on because of the reaction to the dark tone of the film and they had to do something for you know the kids to find good you know to find like oh batman killed a baddie or something like do you know what i mean where they tried to maybe yeah. balance it out by having batman do some more typical things maybe i I think there's kind of a toy play in this as well, right? Because they kind of want to make iconic... I mean, there's obviously a massive relationship between Batman and merchandise, and actually McDonald's, believe it or not, have influenced uh, the Batman movies a lot more than than you'd think. Um, there was a massive sponsorship deal uh, for Batman Returns between McDonald's and Happy Meal Toys. And uh, this this deal was done while they were negotiating with Tim Burton to come back. So I said, yeah, of course, we'll 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 share stuff with you. You can make the toys, you can put it in the in the Happy Meal, and it's going to be worth a lot of money, which will finance most of the film, which is great from their perspective. Um, but uh, when they started to see early cuts of the film, they were like, we can't make toys out of this. We can't make a toy out of Danny DeVito. Look at it, you know, sort of thing. We can't do a Catwoman. That's basically going to be a no, it's, it's not appropriate for children. <laughs> so they started introducing new variants of these toys, which ended up being really massive, really expensive collector's items. If you're holding on to any of this stuff, check it out on eBay. You're probably sitting on a gold mine. But um, they then started introducing things late to the film. So 
um, I believe the Batarang scene. There's a scene where um, in this particular fight scene where Batman gets out a, a remote controlled Batarang, which looks like a an 80s Game Boy, and he he throws it around and, and you see it going. That actually become a toy with a with a little 8-bit game programmed in on that. And uh, that is where I think maybe that big fat clown that he puts the dynamite on, I can imagine that being a, a collectible action figure, which they just go, oh, that'll be iconic for the film. We'll put that in. Annoyingly, I owned the remote control Batarang as a kid. <laughs> I mean, I to be fair, it it's, a pretty, it's a pretty dope toy. <laughs> uh, we already talked about that scene where Shrek meets, meets Penguin and, and the hand stuff. But let's talk about um, Selena Kyle a little bit. So we were introduced to her earlier on in the film uh, she is actually part of that big fight scene where she's being held up uh, against her will by one of those clown posses and they've they've made a real active choice with those clowns to not look anything like the joker or any part of joker's gang although apparently in the novelization of batman returns they say that basically leftover goons from from the joker have been recruited by the penguin that's how there's still like kind of a, a clown theme to them i have a question so this is because you've reminded me of this question essentially with with the goons. So like, there's a moment in the film where Batman or Bruce Wayne talk, was is talking to Shrek and he's basically saying that you know Penguin's got you know th- like he's responsible for some organised crime because we know obviously you know in the comic books and all that kind of stuff that Penguin is essentially a mob boss, right? That's basically his gimmick. Yeah. He's a mob boss. My question to you is this: How the fuck? Right, how is he a mob boss? How has he got all of these people, right, these followers, as it were, if he's been raised by penguins, and he's never come know, out, and, and he's never come outside? It's kind of weird. They're trying to say that there was he was part of a circus, and that circus, and he was like the freak boy in the in the circus. When the circus closed down, they found refuge in an old uh, in the in the place that he was he was found being raised by penguins and for some reason the red triangle circus gang want to hang around with him here's something that might blow your mind I don't, don't know if you knew this one so um, in the original cut of or original script of this film there was going to be a character played by um ah oh, the guy from white chicks uh Marlon Wayne I think that's his name he was he was one of the the gang he was uh, he was into his he was a trapeze artist and he was going to switch sides and help Batman and he was going to become Robin ah it would have been quite nice to tie all that up together really wouldn't it that would have been alright yeah so but then at this point this script is so stuffed and this is another point about the film right and I'll, I'll go on a bit of a rant about this later but this film is stuffed right there are four main characters to service now there is a storyline which goes absolutely bonkers this actually the whole film spans over five days and in those five days a lot happens so they had to start trimming the fat. And there are some scenes which could have been extended. There's some bits where actually narratively it would have made more sense if they touched upon other stuff. Uh, like, for example, the scene where the Penguin first uh, announces himself to the world and Bruce Wayne's sitting at home watching TV. And I love the, the, the sort of banter between him and Alfred where he's just like, must you be the only one being miserable tonight, <laughs> sir? And uh, they're watching it. And the first thing he says is, I hope he finds his parents. And then five minutes later, literally five minutes later, he's in the Batmobile stalking the Penguin and Alfred pops up on on Bat Skype and says, you know, go to bed, sir. And he's like, I think he knows who his parents are. Now, how does he switch from, oh, I really hope this guy finds his parents to all of a sudden I see that inner darkness, which means he's lying. That would have been interesting if they pulled that apart. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you on that one. I made the exact same note in my notes about this that uh, I found that quite jarring um, departure mm. from what he'd previously previously just said. I had attributed his change in in demeanour towards the penguin to when he's watching the speech on TV. 
there's I thought there was a look or something on the penguin's face or he's looking at something or he'd seen or there's something in that scene at the very end of when penguins on the screen that I think Bruce Wayne picks up on um, and then that's why he kind of suddenly all right hang on a second I need to investigate this but I didn't go back to look at it again because I yeah I yeah. just didn't I don't know why but even like a glancing look even just extend that scene by five seconds just to go back to his face of looking like ah oh, something's not right that would have helped you narratively understand that actually Bruce has got an axe to grind for this guy and there's a reason behind that um, but anyway, let's talk about uh, Selena Kyle, that first scene where she goes home. And, uh, I mean, it's amazing how they've done this. They've done it in a way to basically say, look, her life's pretty crap at the moment. She's been crapped on by everyone. And she lives in a in a weird pink flat with a doll's house and a giant illuminous sign saying, hello there, hanging over a bed. It's very, very strange, isn't it? And she comes home and she's obviously very downtrodden. What does she say? Like, honey, I'm home. Oh, that's right. I forgot. I'm not married. And it's just like... Oh, it's really sad. And then she kind of looks at her answering phone messages and her mum is just like, you know, what are you doing with your life, basically? And it's just like, ah, uh, literally the downtrodden. Like, you think of Gotham as a horrible place anyway, but Selena Kyle is, mm. like, essentially at the bottom rung of that horrible place. And, uh, yeah, you feel sorry for her, man. <laughs> and she gets that voicemail from herself, which is kind of weird to say, don't forget the papers for the Bruce Wayne meeting tomorrow, which I assume gets postponed by a day or something. And uh, obviously because of that one city square being attacked, because apparently that's all of Gotham. And uh, she goes back to her office, and we talked about that scene already, about how amazing the tension between her and and Max is in that. Just one thing about Max in that in that scene. So like the bit where um, once Max Shrek has realised that obviously she knows something that she shouldn't, and he's basically pretty much deciding he's about to kill her essentially and he goes up to her and he's like um he then fakes her and he's like ah and she's like what mm. and then they start laughing and then he just fucking pushes her out the window again anyway like that for me was just like that was someone who was playing with his food before he was going to swallow it and it's just like a small indication of the kind of bastardry like skullduggery that this man is capable of you know what i mean like they talk about his wife later on and essentially imply that he offed her as well to take her money. And it's like, he's just a bastard. And it's it's very, the little things where he kind of plays with his food kind of thing before he then, you know, he's a horrible, horrible man. I mean, but it does lead into what I think one of the most striking scenes in the film is, first of all, Selena Kyle plummeting to her doom. And then the scene where it goes proper full horror film where the cats are surrounding her, her eyes roll to the back of her head, they're nibbling at her fingers. I always remember how, how much that grated on me, seeing those cats nibbling at her fingers. It's horrible, mate. It's horrible. And again, like, it's the ears, the cats on the fingers with the... Because you see that one cat having a good old nosh, there's blood going on. Mate, and then when she kind of, like, jerks back to life, as it were, it's fucking horrible, mate. It was, uh, you know, the, the film's a PG-13, and I, I question it a little bit. Well, yeah, definitely. Um, I think they literally pushed the boundaries over what, what makes PG-13 at that time. But here's something which I didn't realise was a thing, but apparently it is a thing. When doing research and reading up on different reviews and people's interpretations of these scenes. Now, to me, it feels like Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman is not immortal. She's not immortal. She's just someone who fell through a, through a building, survived it, luckily, had one too many hits to the head and become a bit psychotic. Now, looking at this film in a different light, after hearing some other reviews and people talking about this, 
a lot of people believe that actually no, she's supposed to be immortal, and it's kind of she's kind of like the crow. She's been reincarnated, and she's got a certain number of lives. And yes, there's that scene at the end where she's being shot, but you can still suspend disbelief enough to say, well, she's she's just been shot alone. She's not going to obviously make it out, but she's not immortal. She's not someone that's carrying lives over. There's nothing supernatural about her. She's just had one too many hits to the head, and she's gone psychotic. What was your interpretation of her? Uh, I thought that she. I thought it was a crow gimmick myself. Um, you know, she she references her nine lives throughout the film after she gets obviously has the transformation, and at the very end, spoiler alert for people who haven't got to the end yet, when she French kisses Shrek with a fucking taser gun next to like loads of circuitry, and you saw the state of him at the end of the film when his face was just obviously just basically burnt away and everything was on end. It was horrible. Um, and then at the very end of the film, you know, she's still alive and she looks pretty happy, you know, staring at the, the bat symbol. And it's like, I think she that was her last life, I think. She's on one at the very end of the film. Um, so that would then, I imagine, explain if she was in a future film that why that, you know, her being probably yeah. in peril would be a bit more perilous but it's because they obviously fly through those lives pretty quickly at the end of the film but for me she's um yeah i always thought that she'd basically been kind of reanimated she had a nine live gimmick and yeah i think it was just something to do with that oh that's interesting even you've, you've taken it that way as well a lot of people have and there's actually quite a bit of a divide on it a lot of people say no 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 it's just it's just a play on words and obviously she's obsessed with cats so she says cats have nine lives well i mean look, however she survives that last bit where you know she essentially should be a fried you know bit of bread mm. I, I don't know because you know you see the state of shrek after that and she's still alive at the end of the film so yeah, no, that's a good point. And we'll touch on that later in a little bit because actually that was a, an additional scene after early screenings of that because of how people interpreted uh, A, that ending, but also they just didn't want to see her see her croak it. So anyway, let's, let's move on. So um, obviously Max has met Penguin now. They've got this... Everyone's got a plan, but no one's sharing their plan. So obviously we know that we know after knowing the whole film is that Penguin's actually got a motive to to kill every firstborn. Uh, Max, for some reason, whoa, 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 so whoa! I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to interrupt, dude. Can we can we expand very quickly on 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 the Penguin's actual motive here? Because when yeah, right, when he reveals near the end of the film actually what his plan is, and it's to basically go around in the creepiest fucking train of all time, right? Like a child's <laughs> train set and very calmly go and basically grab every firstborn son out of their sleeping beds, right? By that creepy lurch guy in the front of the carriage, right? Stick them all in a cage and then drop them all one by one into a vat of toxic waste, yeah? Like, absolutely not. That is fucking horror movie type shit. I paused it at that point and I said to my housemate, Lee Collard, that's right, he's got a shout out. I said to him, like, bruv, can can I just recap this film for you? Because this, this is no friendly Batman here. This is genuinely dark as shit. And I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I could not believe that, like, a film as big as this... Because I remember as a kid, I remember it being everywhere. I remember the McDonald's deal. I remember getting those Happy Meals. I remember it being on the side of buses. I remember the marketing where you've got the eyes of of Catwoman. You know, I just remember it all. And it's like when when I've actually gone and watched it again, and you see actually what the actual storyline was, it's unbelievable, me. I can't believe they went there in that direction, and it for such a big film unbelievable yeah it's it's absolutely batshit insane and the fact that they literally dump all that exhibition on you within the last 
five minutes of the film. Like, it's just a, oh, actually, it's nothing to do with his parents. Oh, he doesn't want to be mayor, other than the promise of unlimited poontang from Max. Yeah, that's oh, right. God. That was one of the things he promised him. Um, that that this is actually, this is his play. This is what he's all going out for. But here's where it kind of, you know, we've kind of, I don't want to beat up the film from that perspective, but there are a few narrative points where I just go, why didn't Max just run for mayor himself? Surely it's easier to get a crook to be to have his opinion changed slightly in the court of public opinion than to get a guy out of the sewer looking like a penguin who murders people and bites people's noses off. And by the way, he's not very woke. I wouldn't have him as a candidate where he literally stands there and goes, I'd like to fill her void. And uh, that horrible gropey scene. The, the groping scene. My God. I, what was you oh, when he basically he sticks a name tag for his like presidential campaign or mayoral campaign sorry and he sticks the name tag on the girl's shirt and basically feels her up for a, for a, a five of the most uncomfortable seconds I've ever seen. Ugh. Honestly, like what on earth is going on? What can I just? What I will say though, I know that you're about to beat this film up a little bit over some of these choices. I will take all of the darkness and all of the general wrongery of this film over pretty much any of the other films all day long uh but just because i like the the tone is so dark and so horrendous that it's it means everything has a real degree of weight to it in my in my head i felt like the stakes were high you know what i mean um it was offset a little bit by a scene that we'll come on to later on which pretty much ruined the film for me on reflection but we'll get to that later and i'll I'll say what bit i meant when i when 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 we get to it for all its faults there's a a grace about it there's a masterpiece in here and uh you know let's let's not forget that we used to have to wait 10 years for a good superhero movie you know we we now get three a year and yeah there's that argument about saturation my point is is that these films paved the way for that and they, they didn't have a formula to follow. They set the formula. The whole more than one bad guy in a film, yeah, thank you, you're welcome from this film. <laughs> and they, they they introduced so much of that stuff. So, yes, there's going to be some faults, and it's evolved since then. So, yeah, everything, anything negative, it's, it's mainly from love rather than anything else. But let's talk about that, that day, right? This kind of thing. Like I said, this film's kind of set over five days. But uh, over, over the next 24 hours, what happens? The Penguin saves a baby. Bruce Wayne watches him on the news for the first time. Penguin goes to the City Hall of Records and finds the name of every firstborn son in Gotham, whilst Batman goes out in his Batmobile inconspicuously, which, by the way, I love that scene with the snow laying down and the Batmobile just going across the fresh snow. Uh, when he looks through the window of the public hall of the, the city hall and the, peng- <laughs> the penguin is there just kind of you know with his massive hilarious quill you know, quill, just, yeah. you know writing down all these names and batman just pulls up outside in his batmobile and kind of peeks over at the penguin he's like yes yes getting names are you yes and then just kind of just slowly ambles off in the snow it's just like what the hell is going on it's still the same night it's still the same night at this point penguin then goes to a graveyard calls a press conference and announces his name. There's a bit of funny trivia in this, is that um, they had to cut it in because the scene was so beautiful the way it was shot, but um, Danny DeVito trips over right at the start and touches a gravestone and knocks it over, and it's clearly a polystyrene grave, (laughs) (laughs) and it just looks so budget, but because the rest of the shot of the light of him walking up to the grave looks so good, they keep it in. It's only like a split second, but it looks hilarious. But all that happens in a night. Like... This is where you start thinking, what what the hell is going on? Well, to be fair, I will, what I will say, though, is that that is pretty common for Batman, right? Like, a lot of things happen in nights. Look at the previous... Uh, I'll talk about video games for a second. Look at all the pre the Batman games, Arkham Knight, Arkham City. 
Arkham Asylum, they all happen pretty much in a night. Um, I've read plenty of Batman comic books where everything takes place in a night. So for me, it wasn't so unexpected too much, you know? That's fair enough. That's fair enough. But anyway, let's talk about the ne- literally the next day now. So Penguin has announced his name as, as Oswald Cobblepot and uh, he's now in his office which has been built for him. And by the way, he's been linked with organised crime and a gang of circus freaks. Somehow he's managed to smuggle them into his hideout and they've managed to build an office for him to run his mayor campaign from, which, by the way, 24 hours previous, no one knew he existed and he just <laughs> saved the mayor's baby. Which, by the way, which this the saving the mayor's baby, by the way, right? The fact that the guy who kidnapped, kidnaps the pet baby is clearly a member of the Penguin's gang and it completely overlooked. <laughs> completely overlooked. Oh, no. It was, like, the most obviously staged, like, you know, like, good deed or, you know, good bit of PR. And it's just that everyone falls for it. Of course they do. For hook, line, and sinker, mate. Now, nah, mate. Penguin's a hero. Look at him. Yeah, Daily Mail spin, mate. <laughs> it's just amazing. <laughs> so so that's, that's all going on. And at the same time, he's being unveiled as a mayor candidate and attacks someone on, on first day and harasses someone. Um, but they, they decide to switch up the pace a little bit and go back to that original meeting that was meant to happen the next day between Bruce and Shrek. And it's got the best scene in the film for me as Bruce Wayne, or at least one of them. The way he throws that paper over to Max. Oh, just glorious. I'm the man here. You could you could throw a thousand sheets of paper <laughs> over to someone and you'll never be as cool as that one time no. he does it. And and this is where, although I do beat up the dialogue in this film, this is, for me, the best Batman line in any Batman film, where he meets Selina Kyle for the first time as Bruce Wayne. And Selina Kyle um, is actually freaking everyone out because she's actually back from the grave and people obviously not letting know what happens. And he and he's introduced to Selina and he goes, oh, yes, we've met before. And she goes, no, we haven't. And he goes, oh, I must have mistaken me for someone else. <laughs> And you just think, oh my god, that is such good, such a good line. Obviously, he's referring. You, know, you don't have to, I don't have to explain that how amazing that line is. I love that. That epitomizes Bruce Wayne. It epitomizes the duality of his life. I just love that line so much. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I agree. I absolutely love it. Um, I think the one of the only other lines that um, comes close to it is when uh, in the first film in the '89 Batman, where he's like, "Do you want to get nuts?" Let's get nuts. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah, that is that's a hard one, hard one to stop. Anyway, so that's what happens during the day. At night, we get that infamous scene at Max's um, shopping mall, and we get introduced to to Catwoman properly. She does that amazing bunch of cartwheels. But I want to talk about the fight, the the big fight that happens between Batman and Catwoman. And speaking to Mike's point about how fucked up some of these things are there's obviously that first bit where they introduce each other and he smacks her and she falls to the floor and plays the damsel in distress and says how could you i'm a woman and he's like i'm so sorry and they do that to basically make you comfortable with the idea of batman beating up a woman you know that actually she gives as good as she gets she's she's vicious she's a fucking feisty fighter and batman has really met his match now you don't realize it but he throws acid at her <laughs> he literally throws a napalm bomb at her that that boils her it boils her skin and then chucks her off a roof she's been chucked off three roofs in this film like <laughs> it's, it's fucking insane uh, but actually one of my favourite scenes in this film is shortly afterwards he's just had that fight she's just felt his ribs and then found out that it's all armour and stabs him and he goes back to the Batcave. And the reason why I love this scene so much, and this is why Michael Keaton, he just gets it. He knows how to move in the suit. He knows how to behave. And his whole 
body language is completely different. He's in the back cave, he's still in the in the bat suit, and he's feeling his sides, and he picks up the phone and talks to Alfred. Now he makes an active choice to not be Batman. He is Bruce Wayne in the suit at this point. He's just so relaxed and chill, and he's just like, Yeah, um, yeah, you got any ointment? Is it big? Yeah. Uh, a little bit, you know. It's just I just the the way he carries himself in that scene. A lot of people, as Michael mentioned, a lot of people critique Keaton as not being a particularly good Bruce Wayne. Now that scene is absolutely brilliant, but also the scene where they go to the mask ball and he walks in. He could be James fucking Bond. Oh. How suave he is. Ah, oh. I love that. But- <laughs> When we'll get when how long are we until we get to the masked ball because I absolutely love that scene we're, uh, we'll hold on to it because we're only a I'll few minutes on. away I'll hold from on that. brother I'll hold on right so so obviously he's he's had that first fight with Selena and everything else uh, he he then convinces Selena the next day to come back to his place and what I really like about that scene actually is like again every time Keaton and Michelle Pfeiffer are on screen together it's fucking dynamite isn't it they oh, even try chemistry. and address a little bit about what happens to Vicky Vale in the first film. They drop a few lines of dialogue mm-hmm. just to just to talk through that. But uh, it's just that scene where the chemistry between them, they're clearly both hiding something. And then the news comes on. An old Cobblepot has been uh, been out <laughs> stealing, stealing broads that, that are supposed to turn on those lights because the lights never got turned on properly at the start of the film. And then we see Michael's Game Boy held up on the screen, that Batarang. And that is the trigger to get them back to that city fucking square again. Now, not to go on the rant about set design on this, but actually the the living room where they're on the sofa, that's actually the same room that Michael Keaton's sitting in at the start of the film where he's brooding for the bat signal. Basically, every scene in Wayne Manor is in that one room. You, you, what, you, you couldn't find the house. You couldn't go back to the house. You decided just to use that again. And you're reusing the same set, which you're led to believe is the front of the, the mall because that's just one angle of it. And now it's where the first fight happened and now it's where they've come back again. He fights Catwoman three times in the same scene. They just reuse stuff again and again. It's it, it That really pisses me off. Anyway, <laughs> run over on that. They've come back to the, the city square and they're having that, that second big fight. And... What did you make of that the second fight where it's the mistletoe scene? Yeah, I yeah, I was uh I have nothing really to say on it, to be honest with you. I thought it was a little bit cheesy, um, a bit too cheesy for my liking at times. Um yeah, I I preferred the first fight by far, put it that way. Yeah, and when I mentioned earlier about it, it kind of goes a little bit Schumacher esque, is because yeah. there's that scene where the fight starts happening and she goes to kick him and he says, eat floor, high fibre. And I was just, I cringed. Yeah, it's just like, when I say cheesy, it's just, ah, it was just a little bit too much for me um, because, yeah, the tone was just not quite right for me in this bit. So anyway, the reason why all this fight is going on, the reason why the the Joker wanted to distract Batman is because, as Michael mentioned, the Batmobile was going to be tampered with. And uh, this leads to an interesting scene where the Joker... Uh, sorry, not jo- I keep saying the Joker, I need to stop saying that. Uh, where Penguin is sitting in his own little toy <laughs> Batmobile, which, by the way, how the fuck do you get that made? And uh, he's rocking back and forth in the news van, which is also in the same square. You know, it's, it's just ridiculous how they just keep using the same stuff. But um, but anyway, Mike, what is your take on this scene? I absolutely love it. Uh, uh, when um, this is the only scene that I remembered really, really well from the uh, from obviously before I'd watched it again, and when it came on, and you see Danny DeVito puts his heart and soul into this character, doesn't he? He really, really, really goes for it. And when he's in that, when he's in the car, 
And Batman then realizes, oh wait, I don't have control over this. And obviously Penguin's on his little, you know, on Bat Skype or whatever. And he's he's driving this car and he's all over the place. And because obviously he's got the big bodysuit on, he looks horrendous. He's gyrating, he's frosting, he's manically laughing. He's obviously, you know, key plot point here. He says some things about the city of Gotham's people, which he, you know, as a politician, you don't want to be heard saying. And uh, Batman gets a CD from somewhere out of a <laughs> bejeweled case somehow, puts it in the uh, CD-ROM drive and obviously presses the record button to record everything that the Penguin has, says. And... Um, I, I found it absolutely hilarious. I really did. When the Penguin then realises that, oh, wait a second, Batman's found the device which has been put onto my car. It's just on the very bottom of it. And then he obviously gets rid of it. He has control over the car again and he stops just in time, you know, to not hit the old lady. Because before this, because the Penguin had, had commandeered the car, he had been mowing down many, many innocent bystanders, basically. Batman, <laughs> complete heel turn, just mowing people down for fun. When the Penguin realises he doesn't have control of the car anymore, his reaction is gold, man. Absolute gold. I, I loved him in this film. I have to say, Danny DeVito as the Penguin, I thought was absolutely hilarious. He's every single scene, his facial expressions, his cadence, the way he speaks. He, for the most part, he makes every piece of dialogue work for me. His physical appearance, I, I absolutely loved him. He was just complete comic gold the entire way. But comic as in scary scary comic somehow like a wonderful mixture of the two no i agree it's such a striking look right and with that scene how that scene ends with uh basically uh batman being chased in a batmobile that's basically falling apart at this point by a a, a cop force which believes he's he's randomly become heel turn and killed killed that lady <laughs> and pushed her off the off the off the cliff and uh or off the ledge shall i say but like, sorry sorry just to, just to interrupt here can we go back to um because we didn't i don't think we covered that because obviously the penguin had stolen he'd basically knocked out the the you know the miss gotham whatever who was going to turn the light press the light on to bring the christmas tree you know put the christmas tree lights on they kidnap her put her on the on the roof they fucking push her off yeah and it's just just casually as you like right the penguin lumps her off the roof and she lands with such poetic license perfectly on the button that she was going to be pressing anyway to turn the lights on and then as to leave no no, you know, clue as to who, you know, no, 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 not no clue, no fucking, you know, question as to who was responsible for this. Loads of bats then come out of the Christmas tree, the spotlights go onto the roof, and there's Batman perfectly being framed for murder, perfectly being framed as the bad guy in all of this, whilst the penguin has control of his car and he's mowing down more people. It's perfect, absolutely brilliant. Like, I, I wrote in my notes that the blackmail of Batman, or like the, the frame job on Batman, genuine brilliance I, I really liked how they they put that together yeah it is it's it kind of couldn't have gone any worse or better however you want to describe it in terms of the bats coming out of the the christmas tree it's quite an iconic scene as well isn't it? the way the bats fill that one square of gotham and um like so uh, completely agree that scene's absolutely stellar and actually to be fair that woman standing on the edge of the of the, 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 the window ledge why does she just get off like that really infuriates me when i watch that part of it <laughs> Um, she does make I mean, to be fair the actress you know she does what she can with the scene the character's obviously there to be a certain stereotype and everything else the first time she's introduced and she's there reading her lines so I say Merry Christmas and then push the button no 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 I push the button then say Merry Christmas she's <laughs> like oh my god sake. Like, yeah yeah exactly but the end of that that whole scene is with questionable road design 
to be fair, of why why has the road got two sides of the <laughs> wall like that? But we won't go into that detail. The scene where he all of a sudden you realise that the Batmobile can can dismantle parts of itself, which I firmly believe is inspiration for um, the Dark Knight in the tumbler of how that falls apart. Yep. I generally think that's a, that's a callback to that. And he just about squeezes through the narrow road. And it's just such an iconic... As We're talking about the cinematographer of this film. It's beautiful. Um, that scene where he squeezes down to the, the mini version of the Batmobile, squeezes between those two walls, and then just drives off into the distance. And the camera deliberately pans back just to show that he's off into the void, into the darkness again. That is such a beautiful ending to that scene. It's a wonderful way to signify his escape. And the fact that then they go to, obviously, the, the, the small gap where he'd squeezed through and the a classic American, you know, dumbass cop cars just crashing into it at a high speed, just absolutely murdering themselves, murdering the cars. It's like, well done, well done guys. Good, good job there. Mm. And Batman's just like, yeah, I'm away now, boys. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Right. So let's talk about that CD. So that CD becomes a really important plot device. In fact, it, it shows us that Bruce can can hack signals remotely for speakers at public events because the next day the Penguin was about to give his press conference about uh, running for mayor and halfway through that speech, uh, Alfred, with his headphones on, being a little hacker that he is apparently, um, hack intercepts the signal and Bruce decides to play the evidence, which to be fair... If that's what derails your entire um, stewardship of a, a political office, you, you're not doing a particularly good job because I'm, I've seen so many... I mean, Theresa May bounces back from that sort of shit for breakfast, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but the one thing I can't, I can't fucking abide by is the scratching bit. You know, he scratches it again and again. That's not how CDs work. No, that's not how CDs work. And um, yeah, that, that, was a, that was just a bit too much for me. A little bit too much. And the the branded CD player, of course, with the bat signal in it. I mean, why not? Yeah, the little subtle, subtle it's, things. Dude, it's, sh- it's Schumacher, man. It's Schumacher. That's literally these are hallmarks of like you know the bat credit card and all that shit. Like that is the yeah. seeds were sown. The seeds were sown. Exactly, exactly. So obviously that led to Penguin in the court of public opinion all of a sudden not being the candidate, and even. Danny DeVito pulls a, a line in this, which makes me laugh, when he's getting absolutely bombarded and he just goes, why always somebody brings eggs and vegetables to a speech? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, And that scene where he he runs back, and he works with this, right? It's really hard to, for him to, to make it to sell this scene, but the scene where he's running back through the park and he's pushing those people out of the way and that <laughs> swan dive into the water. Yes. I genuinely Mate, love that scene. When, when when he pushes the two the couple away, right? The 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 woman that he basically crushes she smashes her head against the fucking side of that bridge mate like no tomorrow and then he gracefully basically swan dives into the uh, mate it's perfect absolutely perfect <laughs> and then we get to the what i'm calling the penguin hitler speech where he's <laughs> basically parading in front of these penguins which here, here you go a little filmy fact for you all the penguins uh, that have the rockets mounted to their backs and the, the eye pierces and all that sort of stuff. Um, they're not animatronics, actually, and obviously they're not real penguins. They're uh, they're little people in costumes. What? Yep, they're, they're all little people. I did not know that. I don't mean that in a derogative way at all. It's just that's that, that, that's what, that's the sort of that's the actors they they hired for for that. Um, for he's yeah you know, he's 
but this is where Penguin stops being human and becomes more more animal than man, really, where he just basically wants death and destruction. That's where you now learn the full plot, the, the whole reason why he's here, the whole reason why he's he even went up the surface to begin with, because he's he's got this axe to grind, which uh, leads to the masked ball. And Michael, how good is this scene? It's perfect. It's, it's, well, not, obviously nothing's perfect, but it's a really, very good scene. The first thing, obviously, is that it's a masked ball, and the only two people in the entire place that don't have masks on are Batman and Catwoman. And, you know, it, I, it's such an obvious, you know, it, they, they, you know they, I think they even mention it in the dialogue. You know, we're the only two not wearing masks or whatever, but it's lovely. It's just a lovely, it's just a lovely little bit of, you know, it's like, I don't know if it's symbolism or what, but I just loved it. I love the little touches like that. And um, mm. I think they have a, re- the, the thing that I did get irritated by one aspect of this scene, because for my money, they should already have realized that one was Batman and one was Catwoman. I think it's pretty fucking obvious the fact they've spent quite a lot of time with each other, you know, and uh, <laughs> when like oh, your, is, your sides hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Something must have happened last night. Oh, what's that horrible acid burn on your arm? About? Do you know what I mean? It's like, and uh, it's quite clearly her. It's quite clearly him. You know, when you're that up close and personal voices, just general demeanor, you can tell, right? I, I'm not having it. Both of them are very clever people by the sounds of it. Him for sure. Surely you fucking put two and two together here. And um, when they both then realise, and it's like, uh, what I want to know is, because when they both realise that one another is the other, as it were, Bruce Wayne says to a sister, Selena Kyle, let's go and talk about this outside. At that moment, big old bomb scare and up comes the penguin from the sewer, right? But I'd love to know what he was going to say to her. Because it's one of the surprising things about this film for me is that, well, on reflection, it didn't surprise me so much, sorry. But when I was watching the film, I was very surprised at how just easily led Bruce Wayne was. Like, Hmm. there's a girl here, or a female, should I say, there's a female in this film who, when she appears again after, you know, being on vacation, as it were, having obviously had the experience with the cats. And she appears again in that scene with uh, Shrek, Batman, and the other dude, the, the dipshit. And she's obviously completely fucking wacko, right? She's completely a psychopath already. You know, she's com- she's <laughs> clearly deranged here. She's unhinged. She's crazy, right? And Batman's like, nah, mate, want to crack onto that? And he's just like, well, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute, surely, like, you should be, you should, no, this is not what you need here. You need a stable, something stable here. She seems utterly insane. Uh, for me, it shows a bit of naivety on Batman's, on on Bruce Wayne's side here. I, I feel like he's a little bit naive in this entire situation. I mean, they try and solve a little bit of that of dialogue in terms of that scene where they're on the sofa, where he's basically, he's basically, I can't, he's hung up over Vicky Vale still. Like, he says, oh, I didn't work out, too many secrets and all that sort of stuff. But you, you can well, tell in the performance there that, some, he's he's on the rebound, you know, and this is well, this maybe is a bit for that. Well, he says, and this is the thing, and this is why on reflection, I actually am not quite as furious as I was while I was watching the film in regards to this particular you know, storyline. But like on reflection, when you actually go, okay, well, the Vicky Vale thing didn't work out because they were very, very different in terms of he had loads of secrets. She doesn't have any secrets. And I think actually with Selena... He can see a lot of himself in her. The fact that she's clearly hiding something. The fact that she's not quite... Everything's not quite as it seems. And I think he's trying to find another kind of... You know, another kinship with someone that's actually quite like Mm. him. You know, trying to basically band the freaks together so he can get some comfort that way. I think that's what 
maybe they were going for. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely like a duality between them. Like they 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 kind of share the same same thing from that. So obviously masked balls happening, they realised who each other are and I just love that line she goes, Oh, do we have to start fighting again? But before they can even come to a conclusion on that, Penguin crashes the party and I, I, I don't want to know the mechanics of how that giant duck works. I don't have a clue. <laughs> I've I've no idea. I won't question it. Suspend disbelief at this point. It's basically go go gadget duck, isn't it? And it just does whatever you want. <laughs> and it turns out that that Max is there as well because it's Max party because everything's to do with with Max. And uh, this is where the penguin decides to tell everyone his plan. Why you're all parting it up? My my boys are stealing your kids at the moment. In the creepy train. Oh, in the creepy train. And he doesn't say the age range of what the first son is. Clearly, because he goes after Chip. (laughs) (laughs) But he doesn't go after Bruce, who is also a first son. But maybe it doesn't count because his parents are dead. I don't know. But um, but the way Chip's just like, no, father, save yourself. (laughs) He's so bad. He's he's literally a a block of wood. But uh, but Max decides to you know uses the old silver tongue again to say about how much revenge and how sweet it would be to to kill him, and obviously it's just a plot device to get um to get Max down to down to the the layer the penguin layer, and uh, obviously Bruce disappears to to go suit up. Now obviously he doesn't have a vehicle at this point, and I firmly believe that the only reason why uh, they even broke the Batmobile was so that they could introduce uh, another toy to sell. Unfortunately at this point, but here's the thing I've got to gripe with right Batmobile classic iconic vehicle everyone knows what it is it's an amazing name he's playing the Batwing what an incredible name they go right amazing. for this film we've got to introduce a new thing he's going to be a sewer dwelling thing what we're going to call it this is the official name of it it's called the Bat Ski Boat <laughs> how uninspiring is that <laughs> the Bat Ski Boat yeah imagine going to school and people are like oh what'd you get for Christmas oh I've got a new Batmobile oh what'd you get well I've got you know do you remember the, the Nightwing that's got the, the little clip at the front of it so it, it pretends it's like a pair of scissors yeah I've got the, the Bat Ski Boat ah oh, sucks man <laughs> I didn't know what the name of that was because they don't mention it obviously at all and uh, I because I had the Batwing I, I got that for Christmas one year it was awesome because it basically is like yeah, a gun same. And you could press the thing and obviously the little scissors. It was, it was amazing. I never asked for the bat ski boat as a child. Yeah, I wonder why. I wonder <laughs> why no kid wanted it. But um, also that, that that important plot device earlier. I keep, I, I, all of a sudden I went uh, West Country there. Plot device. Plot device. The plot device they were talking about earlier of the CD and the signal jamming. Actually, the reason why that scene was in there was to explain uh, how Batman can intercept with the the, the little penguins that are about to blow up Gotham and uh, they're not doing a particularly good job because they all just turn up at that bloody square again uh, because apparently that's all what Gotham is it's just that square mate it's just that square and they use it just to intercept those penguins and send them back to where they came from This at this point Penguin's completely unhinged he's just been run over by the, the bat ski boat at this point to be fair so he's already <laughs> pretty pretty pissed off and uh, the fight ensues now this is the biggest challenge I think the film had and this is the same with any film where your ad, uh, where you've got your protagonist and you've got his his enemies up he's coming up against and when they're not physically matched but they're clear they need to have a physical confrontation at some point how do you deal with that and I think they really did struggle because they can put yeah you know you put Batman against Penguin in 30 seconds he'll just flick him in his giant nose and he's dead so they, they really don't touch upon that at all in fact Batman only gets one hit in and at that point he then and by the way why does he keep bats in his boat? I don't know. I don't think... I, I don't know. There's no way of knowing, think, really. Yeah, I think it, at this point, it's kind of like, look, just just, just finish the film. 
<laughs> it looks just, cool. Uh, it looks in, cool, okay? It looks cool. Just get in, We just need to get him back into the room where there's Selena, Kyle, and Max, and we can have the big showdown and, and finish the film, basically. And uh, it won't go into specific, you know, the, the micro details, although we're, we're one hour 30 in now, um, of exactly what happens, because Mike's already talked about the taser and all that sort of thing. But there's one thing which this film started a trend of in Batman films, which I don't know is a good or a bad thing. Now... We all know that Batman wears his cowl and obviously it kind of looks weird with flesh-coloured eyes. So he puts on black makeup, you know, the old panda eyes. But for some reason, when Batman takes off his cowl in the films, they never want to admit that. So he never has panda eyes when he takes it off. No, so halfway through this scene, all of a sudden he has no makeup on and then he's wearing the cowl with just his, you know, rosy cheeks underneath and it looks absolutely preposterous. Yeah, but the way he tears it off, there's something that, I mean, that could be played in slow motion with <laughs> some amazing, with careless whisper playing in the background <laughs> as he's tearing that off. It tears very, very easily. It's kind of weird. That that really, really sort of grates on me still to this day. To this day, Batman films will be, when he takes off the mask, he doesn't have black makeup on. Why did you start that trend? But what did you make of the finale? I thought the finale was... I uh, Right. I thought they'd booked themselves into a bit of a corner, in all honesty, using a pro wrestling analogy. That's right. Um, where I was like, how are they going to get rid of... How are they going to tile this up? Because one thing we haven't touched on, and I apologise, I know this is a long show already. We haven't touched on actually what Max Shrek's motivation for this entire thing is, right? He wants to basically yeah. create a what a power plant of some sort where he can basically the, the harvest... power surplus. <laughs> the, the power surplus, where he can basically harvest a shit ton of power... For, so then he can have something of immeasurable power that he can then give down to good old Chipper. That's basically the gimmick of the film, right? Because he knows that, you know, he's probably had a life that's been long lived and uh, many, many times he probably should have had his comeuppance. And he knows to basically he needs to get that nest, egg, that nest egg there just so A, he's got a legacy and B, he can pass that down to his son, right? And mm. that's... They, they actually spend quite a lot of time on this film talking about that. However... We have gone an hour and a half talking about this film and we've never mentioned it because it's not important. And I was sitting there thinking, right, Max Shrek, he spent the last 10 minutes of this film trying to get out of a cage by trying to bribe a monkey to go and lock, unlock him. What's he actually, <laughs> what, what, what is his plan here? What is he actually going for here? And he ends up getting French kissed to death. It's like, okay, fine. Catwoman kind of goes with him after basically re uh, refusing Batman's offer to be with him, right? So it's like, okay, and the penguin basically falls in a vat of his own, you know, or, or falls in a vat of Shrek's environmental waste and uh, gets carried into the sea by the by some penguins. And uh, yeah, it was an interesting ending. Um, <laughs> much like the rest of the film, there was absolutely no joy in any aspect of it whatsoever. This is such a som... There is no joy in anything. Even things which are meant to be funny aren't funny. And it's because... They're happening in a very unfunny place. Do you know what I mean? Like, so when things yeah. try to be funny, it comes across as almost tragic. It, everything comes across as quite tragic. And it's just, you end up feeling pity for all of the people that live in this horrible world, you know, that uh, Tim Burton's adapted from, from good old Bob Kane. And it's just like, it's just very, very, it's a very dreary film. And like, even the bits like, um, like with all the penguins, what the fuck's that about? Why Why has he weaponized and mobilized, like, you know, a thousand penguins? How has this happened? How are you telling... Where is he getting all the tools to do this anyway? How do these thugs that, you know, he has in his gang, how do they know how to rewire a car? How do they know how to make all this miniature 
fucking rockets for for all the penguins. Where are they getting all of these rocketry from in the first place? How... I was left with so many questions at the end of it because there are some real technical, like technological masterworks of engineering that have happened in this film, and yet we don't really talk about it. And uh, I you know I came away from it just feeling very, very hollow, very sad, very hollow. I, I certainly wasn't looking forward to another film. Like, put it that way, I, I wasn't. I felt like this is as far as Tim Burton could have gone with it because it's just. I don't think there is a. Like, if Tim Burton had done a third film, I really don't have a clue where he'd have gone with it. Because as I said, I think he's kind of backed himself into a corner in all of it. Because it's so dark. It's so gruesome. It's so... Everything is feels like the end of something, you know? And um, mm. it was a satisfying ending, to a degree. I enjoyed how long and drawn out Penguin's death scene was. I thought that was very poignant because he's such a big character that he needed a, a kind of fitting finale. But... I don't know. I feel like it happened and all of a sudden the film is over and then all of a sudden I've turned it off and I've kind of gone, okay. I had no lasting impact other than the fact that I felt quite hollow at the end of it. What did you think? Mm. I I think the the scene with the penguins carrying him to his watery grave, I think the music is beautiful. I think it the music beautiful. makes 80% of that scene. Uh, yeah, you're right. Without the music, it's it's comedy. With the music, all those emotions you've described there, and then some. Um, I think the the Selena Kyle, uh, Bruce Wayne mask off is interesting, uh, but um, it's basically a means to an end. It's basically just uh, you know she can never actually go live in his castle with him, and uh, yeah, she turns around and does what she does with well, with Max. But obviously, the the main point of this is everyone dies except Bruce. Bruce lives on, and he's got to carry this. Uh, as part of his brooding persona going forward and it ends with a, a very somber long drive in the crisp white snow again with a you don't know how long a period of time it's been since uh, whether it's a day uh, the next hour or whatever and um, you know it, it ends with him just saying merry christmas to alfred now that's where the film actually ends in the theatrical cut, which we're pretty much at the ninety-minute mark, Mike. So there we go. We have got the the, the ninety uh, the football thing in there. But um, <laughs> when they showed this to audiences, a lot of audiences were like, "We don't want a dead cat woman. Like we we like her. She's amazing." So originally, it was supposed to be a subtle suggestion about seeing the shadow of Catwoman, and he runs and gets the cat, and then goes back in the car. And then they went back and refilmed uh, a scene of her just looking up at the bat signal to sort of subtly suggest, as Mike mentioned, obviously, with that stinger, it kind of suggests she is supernatural and all that. But it's a, hey, I still made it. You know, it's the equivalent of a question mark at the end sort of thing. And there were plans for a third film uh, with Tim Burton at the helm. But because how the film was received amongst parent groups and how, more importantly, McDonald's turned around and said to Warner Brothers, we will partner with you again but we will not partner with you again if your films are that dark in tone. So Tim Burton was pretty much pushed out by Warner Brothers and uh, he was allowed to be an executive producer on the next films, but that's where Schumacher was really brought in to, to add this light, lighter tone, more child-friendly environment and uh, at the same time sell a shitload of toys. So that was the, the kind of direction taken from that. And you know, to Mike's point, Imagine if he did go into that third film, because where could he go? How much darker could he take it? Well, this is, this is the thing. I mean, short of seeing people just getting executed on screen for fun, I mean, I don't understand what else could they could do. It's um, <laughs> it's just, it, honestly, genuinely, like, I came out of it and I was just, 
like I really really enjoy the Batman in this in, in these films just because growing up reading the comics and you know I still, I still read the comics now I, I love Batman I really 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 love Batman I feel like Christian Bale does a decent job but he's you know there's something within that doesn't click and I think with Michael Keaton yes obviously I grew up on him and you know for me as a child he is Batman you know even now I remember watching him in the was it Birdman and I was just like Oh, it's Batman. I'm <laughs> just looking at him going, it's Batman's on screen, you know? And um, For me, it's like, in, tonally, I love it. I love films that are... I like dark films anyway. It's why... And I like where there's grit and it's somewhere and it's... Like, I like... I kind of like... Well, the weird thing with this film, I'll sum up. I'll try and sum up because I've got a lot of conflicting views on this film is that whilst it's everything I kind of want in a Batman film to a degree, like, I love... Technically, I should love it all. Um, I come away thinking, much like how you how you opened the show, Flint, where you said that this film has very famous moments, but you know, are the some of their parts, you know, it, is it does it work as a film other than just the famous bits? And I don't think it does too well. I think the bits where it's good are very very good, but I'm not sure it flows as well as it should do. Like I think the first mm. hour of that film is pretty disjointed and quite a mess to be frank um but keaton being batman saves it all for me yeah there's a masterpiece in here it is somewhere between one and five stars however you look at it at different angles uh, yeah. i agree with you completely that keaton makes this uh you know such a memorable performance and if that's the way you go out then that's the way you go out sir i'd like to think that there is a world where Michael Keaton will put the mask back on again whether that's like as an old man Batman I don't know but I would love to see him return he is so iconic in this role he uh, he makes it what I would and, say uh, as well sorry just quickly is that coming off of Batman 89 which you know is my favourite Batman film of all time right I'm taking the Dark Knight into account I'm taking Begins into account I'm taking everything into account Batman 89 for me is my favourite film my favourite Batman film to follow up with that following on from a legendary you know jack nicholson performance of of the joker uh, and just a legendary film in general they followed it up with something that was very very different and i think if you're looking for a follow-up to the original i think this does a pretty this had they have a fucking good go let's put it that way if the third batman film was any good we might be saying this is one of the best trilogies of all time <laughs> yeah maybe <laughs> yeah. well no we could well, be but the third film right? was the third film had all the ingredients. I mean, Jim Carrey and Tommy Lee Jones. Well, let's regard Tommy Lee Jones, but Jim Carrey as the Riddler is, you know, match made in heaven type it's stuff. Master but stroke. Yeah. Genuinely, when I watched that film a few years ago, the way that film is shot, the way the dialogue, oh, it's fucking terrible, mate. It's so bad. Right. So let's let's wrap this up then. So for you, what is your favourite scene or moment of dialogue in this film that epitomises how good this film can be? Oh God, that's a hell of a question. Um, my favourite scene... Oh, you, you, dude, you've put me on a spot here. Put me on a spot. What, what's your favourite oh, okay. scene? Well, while you're thinking, um, it, it's a toss-up between one of two scenes. Either it's the scene where, as mentioned before, Michael Keaton says that amazing line, I must have mistaken me for someone else, which I just, I, I generally love that scene. <laughs> or, and although it's, it's, it's nothing to do with the action, it's nothing... It, he hasn't even got the, the penguin it. The scene where Bruce turns up to the masked ball for the first time. Oh, yeah, no, that's walks it. Walks down that... those stairs. Like I say, he could that could be plucked out of a James Bond film. That shows... That's a, a legacy of playing Bruce Wayne there. And he's he comes in, you know why he's there. He's not there to, to fraternise with society. He's there for his mission. 
but he puts on the persona, he puts on the charm. I, I love in that as well when when she says to him, you know, why are you here? And he's just like, to see you. Yeah. Just like to the point. Yeah, I know. I, that For me, I'd forgotten that scene entirely, to be honest. With you. I don't remember that scene at all from my childhood. And that was the scene that stuck out with me the most afterwards, was definitely that one. He looks a million dollars in that suit as well. <laughs> yeah. Like he's... He's just he's just living the dream at that point. So and and it's weird, yeah. You think about all those iconic moments; they're all very uh, they're all very set driven, right? In terms of spectacle and effects. But but two of my favourite scenes: he's not wearing a suit. Uh, there's no bad guys actually physically in presence. I know Max is technically a bad guy, but it's not he's not fighting anyone. It's just just dialogue. And you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily think the best scenes in this film are dialogue based when you hear lines like. Treat me like number two, and uh, I'll show her my French flipper trick. <laughs> oh God! I will say honourable mention to that scene where Catwoman eats the budgie. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's quite cool. That is very cool. In fact, if it ended with her just eating the budgie at that scene, rather than Penguin lying on the back going a plunk, <laughs> a purges, it's like you've literally even it even feels like that's how the film has been written at this point. They've gone, <laughs> yeah. oh, we've got these four bad guys or these four characters sorry we need to clash and somehow make max the connecting tissue between all of them which is completely unnecessary the power sir you could literally not have max in this film and no. you would i think you'd have a much better film because it would breathe a lot better yeah no i completely agree i completely agree cool right so thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this special christmas podcast about batman returns i want to thank michael dude it's been an absolute pleasure how can people find you uh, yeah, so you can find us on iTunes and Spotify. We are called A Pod of Two Halves. Uh, we are, our Twitter handle is at Pod of Two Halves. We release a show every single Wednesday. And uh, basically, it's all right. It's about football. And uh, I do it well, I'm a Man United fan. I have an Everton fan mate who is Everton fan mate. What am I about? I have an Everton mate who is also on the show. And a Chelsea mate who is also on the show who has been on your show, Thomas Woods. He's been on the show before, hasn't he? Yeah, he was on the Infinity War spoiler cast we done, which, uh, yeah. which yeah, people who have downloaded that will, will recognise. Recognise. There you go. The gimmick is Lee, Lee's an Everton fan, Tom's a Chelsea fan, I'm a United fan. Basically, we come to the show armed with four or five talking points, and we chat football for an hour and a half or an hour, depending on how much we have to talk about. So yeah, you can find us on all the all the good podcasty apps. So give us a follow, man. There we go. So, yeah. so on that, thank you for taking the time to listen to this. Have a great Christmas and a good New Year. We'll be back with a usual pod at the usual time. Stay filmy. You can get in contact on Twitter at TalkFilmyToMe or email us at podcast at TalkFilmyToMe.com. Till next time. Thanks for having me. We're down in the basement. We'll lock the cellar door and baby. Talk Filmy To Me.